I have to tell the people about the Patreon. Yes, you do. Patreon.com slash SMDB. SMDB, like so many damn books. For just a dollar, you can join up and you get access to all the exclusive content that I record just for the Patreon. Also, you get to join the book club. The So Many Damn Books book club. It's been some of the best conversations I've had about books. It really always sounds like a blast. I usually like come home and just hear like giggles coming from the library. So it's a great time. You should join. And I would love to have more people join the fray. You may or may not know that Christopher runs this whole show himself on the hosting side, on the technical side, everything. This is a one-man show, truly. He does it all. Support your boy Christopher. Even at the dollar level really helps. So uh, join up patreon.com slash smdb i'd love to have you patreon.com slash smdb on with the show it's up to you alexander oh to me okay uh uh yeah let's take a break yeah Yeah, (laughs) so many so many so many damn books i am christopher I'm Drew. And in the damn library today, we have Alexandra Kleeman. Uh, she is a New Yorker, a PhD candidate in rhetoric at UC Berkeley. Um, your work has been published in the Paris Review. You remember this? Zoetrope, <laughs> uh, Guernica, Tin House, N Plus One, many other places. I remember it. <laughs> um, you wrote an incredible novel that we've already talked about a little bit on the show. Um, yeah, because we just couldn't help ourselves. Uh, oh, thanks, you guys. two <laughs> can have a body like mine, and it's uh, right at the top of one of the, my favorite things I've read this year. Yeah. And um, yeah, welcome. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for having me. Absolutely. Yeah, and thanks for, um, I guess, like writing this book was such a crazy and isolating process. Like, <laughs> I sort of sat alone in a room for two years, approximately, and ate toast. So, um, I'm always happy when people don't think I'm crazy. (laughs) (laughs) We should talk about what we bought. Yeah. Because we're all book buyers. (laughs) Um, Alexandra, do you want to talk about what you bought? Um, Well... A couple weeks ago, I think it was a couple weeks, I was at the Texas Book Festival. Oh, cool. How yeah, was that? It, it was great. And I, I love Austin. And I saw a thousand bats. <laughs> so <laughs> um, that makes it a really good time for me. Um, but I uh, got a lot of books by people who I saw there. Um, I got Lovely Day by um, Matt Johnson, oh, yeah. um, who is a great biracial writer. Like I have that affinity for him in me. Um, I got a book by Casey Schwartz called In the Mind Fields. That's about um, the weird connection between uh, Freud and uh, uh, brain injury Mm. um, soldiers, like, in the past. It's a sort of historical study. And um, I got Margaret Atwood's book, uh, uh, The Heart Goes Last. (laughs) Oh, yeah. The one that's like... The new one. The new one, With the sex robots. That's what I... <laughs> yes, yes, it has sex robots. <laughs> and they have a, a special name for them, too. Um, but I guess it wasn't catchy enough to stick with me. But there are some <laughs> other catchy things in there. She does. She always does a good job. I know. Yeah. Um, Drew, what'd you buy? Um, I picked up uh, Dennis Johnson's Jesus' Son. 
Oh yeah, which um, our old producer recommended that to us a long time ago. Yeah. But Picador just put it out in this really pretty, oh, that tiny uh, edition. The it's modern classic thing, like yeah, like it is like, like the little pills on it. Yeah, or <laughs> it, I saw it and I was like, "What is? Th- I need this." Are those hardcover? <laughs> or, um, they are, it, but it's a weird hardcover. Yeah, it, I, I don't. It looks unlike any other book on my shelf because also it's seriously it is this size. It's the size yeah. of my field notes notebook. Mm, that's cool yeah. yeah i like books when they're that size how about you i bought uh t- troubled daughters twisted wives stories from the trailblazers of domestic suspense so there's like patricia highsmith in here and shirley jackson vera caspari uh-huh. and i'm just very excited about looking at sort of where this genre came from because right now i feel like it's in the it's in the it's on the renaissance almost with oh, like yeah. uh gillian flynn yeah oh yeah yeah and uh gone girl and ton of french she's on us also like very yeah big absolutely the domestic yeah, the troubled wives are coming yeah. back <laughs> <laughs> oh does it have yeah. that raw doll story um where he the woman kills her husband with a frozen leg of lamb <laughs> no but what? no it's yeah. just it's just ladies it's, it's just ladies yeah. okay well that one's in the genre yeah <laughs> nice awesome mm-hmm. And, Transition um, music. I'm curious, what um, what was the genesis of the novel? Like, where did it what did it come to you in like a flash, or was it mm. many different parts that you was sort of stitched together? Yeah, you know, um, I'm a person who has a hard time working from you know the really concrete outward. So um, I always tried to like fix on. Um, a really almost impossible idea or something like some concept, some idea or some like feeling I want to create. Um, and then I have to figure out what its material like incarnation would be. Okay. Um, and what this novel actually started out as is, um, I was really drawn to and moved by like the figure of the tragic, uh, cartoon food mascot <laughs> ever since I was a kid <laughs> right like um, I would watch uh, um, the tricks bunny mm-hmm. or um, this doesn't really fit but what was that honeycomb monster you know like oh yeah, yeah he was just insane the, sh- the sugar sugar bear no that was something else um, he had like floppy arms and he was all furry yeah. and I might have he just goes honeycombs <laughs> or something <laughs> but um, all of these uh creatures whose lives rotate entirely around this one like type of manufactured snack food or cereal (laughs) or whatever i always felt so bad for them because you know if that company ever goes out of business what the hell are they going to do (laughs) um yeah so i uh originally wanted to write a book that would sort of have the main character turning into one of these um one of these uh food mascot animals. Um, And the idea was that like, oh, half of it will be in the real world and the world will be kind of shallow and flat and the other half will be in this cartoon world and all the creatures in the cartoon world will have full feelings and like really fleshed out existences and it'll be like much more emotionally complex. Okay. (laughs) Um, This sort of like inversion. And eventually that sort of made it in there as like, um, I think that the... TV commercials and the things that happen on TV are the places where you see like desire and um, an emotion played out in a much more direct and like compelling way. Um. 
the there's something about the book that is and I think it there are a lot of things about it that make it compelling to read. It it's the first book maybe ever that I finished and immediately had to start reading again. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, <laughs> not because there were things that I wanted to try to figure out, but just because I felt like I needed to go through it again to try and like see what the difference between the society that we are currently living in and the one that you were picked, like I needed to differentiate it somehow. I needed to get it away. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's fuzzy. Right. And y- you don't really know if you've read like a work of speculative something yeah. or, uh, and I, I yeah. wanted to ask you if it, I mean, from the sounds of things, your original idea definitely had much more of a fantastical bent to mm. it. But do you do you see this as speculative at all, or do you see it as like, nope, this is this is reality. We just haven't addressed it. Yeah, I think that almost every one of these things could be real, right? right? Um, like some of them, I think, are actual good branding strategies, or <laughs> you know, advertising. Uh, sketches um before before we get super super into it i do just want to say like oh, yeah. what the book's about oh yeah that's oh yeah point. yeah that's um great. which uh the book is about a uh two roommates who are known as a and b and um a's boyfriend who's referred to as c and um they are in sort of like a a symbiotic relationship or the <laughs> The or potentially bad. a parasitic relationship. Yeah, <laughs> and you're sort of trying to figure that out of of these connections and how this triangle is working in a world where there's television commercials that A is focused on, and yeah. and there seems to be a um, across the street there's a family that she's concerned about mm-hmm. and is interested in, and the and the book sort of follows um, A's uncovering of that mystery as well as her relationship with her boyfriend and her roommate. Yeah, down the rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah. So back to your back to your speculative fiction question, sorry. Yeah, I mean it's there was I want to say it was Vanity Fair called right. it Fight Club for Girls, which I have issues with Boo. the idea of like <laughs> Fight Club is not for girls. Right. Like, yeah. Um but that idea of focusing on a female journey through this sort of surreal and focusing on, on femininity and like the, the issues that are facing women in like culturally mm-hmm. today. Um, it does feel like it's maybe the first time that's ever happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think um, part of what drove me to write this book, right. Was um, the sense that my life was taken up with all of these tasks and all of these like items and objects that were not literary. Like I spent the bulk of my life doing stuff that I couldn't write about in fiction because every time I tried to slip it into a short story, it immediately made that short story seem like, um, I, I don't know, like flat or frivolous or it just like was hard to squeeze certain of those like everyday acts for the meaning that they uh, do actually contain within them um so one of the challenges that i set myself to myself and part of the reason why it had to take place in a world that ended up being less speculative or less fantastical um is because i wanted to uh i wanted to deal sort of with the world that i lived in like an exaggerated version of the world or a version which some of the things or feelings that i do experience are turned up um to 10 instead of to seven, you know? Um, uh, but it seemed like, you know, it's not really 
useful to me to talk about w- modern life without talking about some of these things, like mm-hmm. the way that we like gradually shape our faces or reshape our faces or reformulate ourselves as people in these um, sort of mundane and consumerist and like tacky or cheesy ways, um, but ways which like uh, are also sort of incredibly modern like um yeah i yeah. did i, I love the um i loved the idea the constant idea that like there is a product or a food or a way of living that will fix you like if i yeah. if i eat this beauty cream i will become beautiful inside <laughs> <and out. laughs> um but it uh, for as modern as those concerns felt i was sort of curious about um that it did feel sort of old fashioned for it to be so focused on television mm-hmm. and but yet there's not really an internet as presence or a Definitely. or cell phone presence or things that do feel like they're uh, yeah. you know, monopolizing our lives. Well, originally and then some other drafts of this that I had, there was more of an internet presence. Like um one thing I'm really fascinated by are uh you know, banner ads and those, especially moving banner ads that want to speak to you, they yeah. literally will <laughs> activate themselves when you um, scroll down to them. And like, uh, I always felt that was like a really pushy, but um, exciting way to advertise, you know? Um, but in the end, like there just wasn't as much about the internet and I needed to push it out to get a better hold on the world. Like I, I thought that if I have every moving piece in this world sort of active and threatening and in flux like i had to depopulate the world to Mm. be able to like make sure that i could keep like i I think that when you write a book you should be able to name every single thing you put in that book um like sit down with a piece of paper and list them all off every object every person every color even um and uh I guess that's sort of a control freak thing to think, but (laughs) (laughs) that makes sense to me. It it, it does. I mean, it, I'm as far as like control freak goes, like if you're going to control freak one thing, it should be a novel since you created that world. And yeah, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. Like keep it out of your relationships maybe, but put it all (laughs) into your novel. (laughs) Um, Uh, Oh yeah. But uh, for TV, like um, my parents are huge TV watchers and I feel like a lot of relatives are. So Mm -hmm. like, my community in New York, like, is a lot of readers and a lot of, like, um, I don't know, yoga people or mm-hmm. whatever else. But um, when I go home, my parents and I fall into TV for, like, six hours at a time or something. And it is much more enveloping and cozy and um, becomes much more part of your mind, I think, than the Internet does, where you're always actively, like, clicking and moving around on it. Mm-hmm. I can go completely limp and I'm watching TV, like, on a m- mental level and on the psychological level. Mm. Yeah. There's something interesting about the fact that the book doesn't take place in a major metropolitan area. It feels like the sort of book that, take like, the town I grew up of outside of Philadelphia, it, like, feels sort of suburban. There's, like, some sense of yeah. city there. I felt I felt very much, like... It it felt far too similar to the su- suburb where I grew up in Southern California. It felt oh, yeah. like very much like a Southern California suburb. Yeah, and I, 
I was actually thinking maybe the most of Southern California um, because the times when I've walked around Southern California without a car have been extremely formative. (laughs) 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 It's like maybe the closest to the the sublime I've ever gotten, like the feeling of my own smallness and endangerment in a large, like... uh, Oh, yeah, because there's no one going to help you out. And there's no, no, like, cab by that'll, like, speed it up. Like, there's no cab. No, there's no cab. (laughs) There's no... (laughs) There are no bus stops like it's just yeah there isn't even anyone driving slow enough to look you in the face and decide whether they want to give you a ride or not you're just (laughs) like a little color like out of the corner (laughs) of their eye (laughs) um i noticed that there was almost um a reluctance to name to name some things like some things are very named and like branded completely and other things like your main characters remain as do you feel like uh, those are their names or those are their signifiers Yeah, I mean, I don't think those are their names, but to me, like, um, well, there's using, like, the ultra-specific, like, brand names, TV shows, whatever, as a marker, and then there's the vague, and the vague can be vague, like, genuinely vague, or it can also be an odd way of bringing you close to the specificity of whatever it is you're looking at because when you don't have like an easy tag to refer to it by I feel like sometimes you have to engage more deeply with like just well how exactly is this thing looming towards me is it frightening is it uh is it menacing is it um passive or is it um like uh my goal in sort of naming the characters a b and c was to you know, set them apart, like they're the main characters, they really are the only ones who ultimately matter, and the one, the people who come up later in the book I see as sort of echoes of them, like mm-hmm. they're built as people, entities that remind you of the former people. Oh yeah, I was yeah. definitely sort of, it was it was shocking when later on in the, the novel you named, you named someone, uh, a- a- when Anna showed up. Oh yeah. And then I did end up thinking of her as like a brand of a person rather than... Yeah, yeah, like, um, the people that matter the most to us, I think, we don't even think of them by their names, usually. Like, even if their name is a way you talk about them, like, you have a sensory memory of them. You have, like, a feeling that comes up when you think of them. And um, maybe that's sort of why it's always been hard for me to name characters, but I've I've been doing it. I've been writing a series of stories, and someone is named Karen. <laughs> that's her name. <laughs> And it's not even a fake name. <laughs> oh, I'm, I, yeah, I meant to say that you have also a short story collection coming out next year. Yeah, I- in yeah. Intimations, is that still the title? That's still the title, yeah. Okay, cool. <laughs> cool. Yeah, and I'm hopefully still writing a couple stories for them. Oh, great. For, yeah. this, is th- this is a very food-based novel in some mm-hmm. ways. Like, hunger really drives a lot of, of the narrative and like the feeling of wanting something specific and not being able to get your hands on it. Yeah. And I was curious if after writing this book and like sort of exercising it from <laughs> you, um, if you, if your relationship to food has changed at all. Yeah. Um, that's a great question. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I, I guess I've always had this, thing about food like s- sticking in me I could never quite figure it out like um for me there was always like a lot of weirdness and guilt associated with e- eating things that were once living um 
I think it has to do with uh, when I was a well, okay, one one origin point is <laughs> when I was a little kid, um, my mom's a Japanese literature professor, and she has lots of great and often really terrifying books in her office, <laughs> and I would go and borrow them when I didn't have anything else to read, um, and she had this collection of science fiction stories, one of which was about um, a guy who decides that it's wrong to take the life of anything, including a plant, to further your own survival, so uh, he just systematically amputates and eats himself and that's the whole story <laughs> and after i read that like oh, i closed oh. it <laughs> put it back in my mom's office and then um i haven't been the same <laughs> for <laughs> the next 20 years <laughs> do you do you remember what that um story or that book was called yeah um well i forget the anthology it's like best japanese science fiction stories but um the story was called the hungry mouth and it was by um this writer sakyo komatsu Writing this book, right, like, I kind of wanted to go through, as a writer, the same narrative contour that my character does, like, write myself back into acceptance of, like, the food industry and my place in it and my role as a happy eater. Um, and I really think that I obsessed over the issues so much that I am more at ease with them. But then, like, uh, as soon as I go back into work mode, I realize, like, Nope. <laughs> I, I'm not done with it as a person, but I think I'm done with it as a writer for a little bit. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I ate differently in a very specific way after reading this book. My mother sent me a box of uh, Tasty Cake candy cakes. Oh, yeah. Which are like not the candy cakes described in this book. I wasn't even thinking about it. I was very excited because they were like one of my childhood favorite treats. Oh yeah, because you're from Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I opened up the box and I was about and I was like, ooh, candy cakes <laughs> with the K's. Oh. <laughs> and they sat on my shelf for like a month oh, man. before I could finally get to the point of like, okay, I'm at peace with this incredibly processed piece of sugar that I'm about to put into my body. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the, the cake actually also reminded me of a, a Haruki Murakami a short story about the Sharpei cakes. Do you know that yeah. story? Uh, with the Sharpei crows? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I was expecting, I was actually sort of expecting some sort of surreal like origin, like actual origin <gasps> of, of <laughs> <laughs> like that. Um, oh, which yeah. is a, that's a, because that's a really unsettling short story. And so like, I guess like the the um the literature of the unsettling is is that something like it feels like this goes right next to things yeah. like that. Yeah, definitely. Like um uh I don't know why there's so much of it in Japan, but I feel like um I actually really deeply enjoy a lot of things that most people are surprised I do <laughs> I enjoy. But um the stuff that like sticks with me that like um irritates my mind I in the good way like won't leave um and won't let me like for forget about it is usually either something that remakes the world in an unsettling way or something that um shows you a really unsettling dimension of another world mm. yes yeah <laughs> Um, now that we're back, a uh, correction from a previous episode, <laughs> uh, Christopher. Yeah. Well, I mentioned that I don't read scary books because I feel like I'm going to end up with a free, a full freezer. 
And I was making a reference <laughs> to a but, but no one got included yeah. <laughs> to a friends episode. I didn't. So um, there's a friends episode where Joey is reading The Shining, and uh, he's so afraid of it that he ends up putting it in his freezer um, to keep himself safe from the book. Mm. Does so that make sense? To yeah, <laughs> completely opposite. From yeah, what? Yeah, I'm some not going to do anything. Yeah. <laughs> I'm actually going to just have really cold books. Yeah. <laughs> no, that makes them less scary. Yeah. Well, they can't get to you. Yeah. They're in the freezer. <laughs> and I feel like um, the the book that we're pivoting to talk about right now, The Blind Owl by Sedeg Hediat. Mm. Is that yes. how you would? Yeah. I, yeah, that's how I said it. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I don't really know. Is a book that could end up in Christopher's freezer. Yeah, it is. It is really. It is a really scary book, and um, this is the book that you, um, Alexander, brought to us as the book we should read. Yes. So I'm curious <laughs> what um, what made you think that this was a good book for Drew and I to check out. <laughs> Why did I do this to you? <laughs> <laughs> Why? Why did you? Uh, do I guess um, uh, this is a book that's really close to me you know like i i read of when i was in college um i was terrified or and like inexplicably energized and and things like that and um i always sort of want to share it with other people just to see if that they can if they can help me um crack the code and figure out exactly what is going on that oh. makes me feel like i'm living through this terrible <laughs> experience so, so you say that this is like this is like the ring for you you like you this is you're like playing the <laughs> yes. videotape i'm like now, now i'm fine <laughs> <laughs> Oh yeah, and yeah. I've infected you. Yeah, now you guys have to pass it on. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is us passing it on to you, listener. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, it was a really strange reading experience. It's um, the the plot, which is thinish, is yeah. is a a man is um, is in bed getting over his heroin addiction, and he seems sick in general. Mm -hmm. There's something wrong with him. Yeah, and um, he sort of catches the sight of someone either he does in real life or he does in his imagination. Mm. And uh, it occasions a vision, and from that vision forward, you're not sure where what space you're in of reality or in the bedroom. Or God, not sure is like even being too specific about it. Yeah. There were several points where I was like, ah, what is happening? Yeah. So you're often stuck in his, his nightmares as he contends with his addiction and his, um, and his relationship to his wife and his caretaker doctor person. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's weird because this book is sort of in two halves. In the first half, he's in a more or less modern time. Um, he lives in alone in a place with a bed and a, um, desk in a closet, a weird closet. Um, and then in the second half, he's um, in the same physical location, but in an ancient city. And he has the same profession. He decorates pen cases, uh, which is not a thing I was familiar with before, but he's a They're pen so case beautiful. decorator. Yeah. yeah. It's exactly what it sounds like. It's like a little round case for a pen, but it's just wow. ornately decorated around the whole thing. Wow. Um, what are they made out of? Because I couldn't really tell. It's like ceramics yeah, or something? Yeah, and, and there's an element of, um, there's like a lot of gold inlay and things like that. Wow. Yeah. I, um, 
Yeah, so he's got this, and and there's an image that he paints over and over that also repeats in the narrative. There's a lot of repetitive imagery. There's a lot of that it gets like twisted and twisted as yeah. it goes. And it's something like there may only be three characters or two characters or even one character in this whole book, and you can't quite tell. But like um, he encounter he describes the man he paints, for example, like this hunched over man wearing a. Um, Indian turban or something, a fakir with a long white beard. And then like his uncle shows up and it's like, my uncle was a wizened old man in a yellow cape with a, (laughs) yeah. And then you're like, don't you see what's going on here? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was, it's a very disorienting, very, again, uh, unsettling novel. And I felt like, you know, because you were the one who suggested it to us, I did end up feeling like there was some connections to, Mm -hmm. to your book. Um, yeah. yeah, there were a couple. I there was one moment in particular that I want to try to find because he, oh, um, the narrator is looking in a mirror, and he he says that his own reflection has become unfamiliar to him. Yeah, and that was a moment where again because it was your recommendation, I was like, oh, that sounds familiar. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> um. Yeah, that's something that I totally identify with. As yeah. you know, um, a a way. What is it? It like um, destabilizes the reality, right? You're like, how can you look in the mirror and not recognize yourself? But then you're bound more closely to the narrator because you're there with them in this strange experience as it unfolds for them. It's like very present. Yeah, um, and it, it was very much, it was similar to some of the mirroring that I, the mirrors are very important in The Blind Owl. Mm-hmm. And they're also like the mirror effect of these um, two roommates, A and B in your novel, they end up, they end up seeing each other and she sees her as becoming more and more like her to the point of like having her change her face. Well, I think, yeah, one of the weird things about makeup is it actually sort of merges your appearance with like a generic person's appearance because you get not, not always an, actually not really an exaggeration of your features. You get like this application of a feature that is attractive Mm -hmm. um, and that a lot of other people like have either what naturally or by application. So that like um, I have had moments like on Instagram looking at my friends or something. I'm like, is that me? And I'm like, no, (laughs) that's my friend. (laughs) Oh, because they have a, they have a, a, a thing that you because they're a dark haired girl with a cat's eye, like eyeliner thing. Um, I was reading, for my book club in October, not as a scary book, I was reading um, a collection of Oliver Sacks's work. Yeah. Um, and he, it was uh, the man who mistook his wife for a hat. And one of the, one of the things that, uh, one of the cases that he studies in that book is sort of similar where somebody cannot identify their body or move their body unless they are looking at it. Uh-huh. And it's that, it, it felt like a similar sense of the inability to, to place yourself where you are. And um, something that also really compelled me, like um, I used to be in cognitive science and there was this guy, um, Ramachandran, who came up with a treatment for treating phantom limbs, right? Like you've lost your limb, but you have this pain, this like clenched feeling that never goes away and there's nothing to do about it because you have nothing to treat, right? So he would have um, patients put their arm in their... uh, existing arm in the box with a mirror to the left side of it, say, and they could see then what looked like two hands, um, uh, you know, 
a hand where their missing limb would be. Mm-hmm. And um, he'd have them like sort of do matched, uh, synchronized movements. Um, like imagine their missing hand moving in the same way as their present hand. And when they saw sort of the mirrored hand, the hand that wasn't really there, moving in this way that they willed, it was sort of like they could like regain willed control over this phantom limb the pain would disappear it was it's an amazing treatment it's so poetic and then it makes this intuitive sense i think yeah Yeah. and i actually had a um a strange sort of that feeling of connectivity of of the universe when i was reading blind owl and listening to a podcast that was bringing up cotard syndrome Uh which is the the syndrome where you believe that you're dead Oh, whoa. whoa. And you're just like, I don't, <laughs> I'm walking, I'm dead. I'm walking around like I, no one, no one can see me sometimes or I'm just like interacting with people. And, and it felt so much oh, like wow. what was going yeah. on. The blind owl, he's often sure that he has died yeah. yeah, or he's, or his wife has, is dead or this beautiful woman that he keeps imagining is, yeah. is like curled up with him and dead. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It was a strange thing where where that uncanny feeling, the, that power of fiction thing, where yeah. if something actually will talk to in your life, will talk to a book without you like occasioning it yourself. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I think some of that has to do with right. We we read in the physical world, but a lot of reading takes place in like the sensory and remembered and like sort of dreaming parts of our brain. So we can partake on from this world of consciousness that is like more fluid than our everyday reality, right? We have the mechanism to um, understand all this. Um, In the, in the forward to the book, which is written by Porachista Kakpur, New York city peer um, (laughs) and a writer of an awesome couple novels herself. Um, But she mentions that this is the most famous, Persian novel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah. And also that the book came out in 1957, which I feel like it could have come out, you know, y- yesterday. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I wonder if part of that time. is like translation or, yeah. Well, the thing for me, and it says this in the the, um, the jacket copy, but it's very similar to the work of Edgar Allan Poe in a lot of ways. And mm-hmm. I feel like this book could have come out like when it came out, to the present day or going back the same amount of time. And the there's there's nothing necessarily that roots it in that moment. Mm-hmm. Instead, it is talking about the much more uh, prevalent across eons thing of, of identity and uh, the way that your brain can almost defeat you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And um, the sort of vagueness of some of the descriptions too i feel like it gets you to invest a lot like mm-hmm. in it imaginatively so like uh whatever time someone was reading it it wouldn't seem dated because it's you know running on that current user's hardware yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. and um i i definitely when i st- when i was about halfway through the book i was thinking like i need to finish this now in this setting because yeah. I, wanted, <laughs> I wanted to be rid of this there's something about just some of those images that I can even, like, even just talking about the book now, I'm thinking about them again and I'm envisioning them again. The, like there's a, a moment where he runs into a butcher 
Oh yeah. And just like the it's it's this menacing. It's straight out of like David Lynch with mm. sort of like that um, what is it called? dream reality? Yeah. The dream logic where it doesn't follow reality. It follows the logic of a dream, which is basically like no logic. The I think the thing that's that I think about now in conjunction the two books in conjunction, which is one of those semi-artificial things like mm-hmm. most people will never think of these two books next to each other necessarily yeah yeah but the blind owl makes me think of and i, I almost kind of want to read your novel again in, <laughs> investing a truly uh unique third read but that idea of like reading <laughs> is a horror <laughs> yeah or something yeah. like i think about the moments in that that were called up just as i was reading the blind owl these ideas of reflection and imagery and, yeah. and sense of self like blurring and shifting like all of a sudden that thing is poisoned um it's creepy it's really creepy you know what like um i think that this does well not that it borrows from horror because i guess if anything horror would be borrowing from it a lot (laughs) um temp in like the chronology of things but just uh they've zeroed in on this similar technique which is um they force the reader to have the epiphany, like the characters in there and they're wandering through this world where they re-encounter like the same dangerous thing over and over again. But we're the ones who see the similarity and go, no, that's happening again. That shouldn't happen again. Right. Like it's uh, impossible. Yeah. yeah. So that, um, that's what happens for me, at least when I dream, I have a lot of dreams where like something terrible is wrong with the world and I'm the only one who sees it. <laughs> <Really>? <laughs> um, yeah, I, it it was actually a, something else that I was thinking about with this book um, was sort of something that I worry about, especially when I think about television and movies and books and mm-hmm. how deep in media we can be now. Mm-hmm. We can really choose and tell, and, and all of media is at our fingertips at all times. Um, and I've always thought that, that, would, that there's a danger in fracturing your identity in, mm-hmm. into how many stories you can have going at the same time now. Mm-hmm. Um, but then looking back at the blind owl, <sighs> it turns out that, it, you know, you're, you can fraction your identity in a million different ways. Um, yeah. That's true. But then again, like if we think of this book as like a heroin novel, mm, and um, it is, which it is, yeah. which it is, uh, th- then, you know, is it okay if our reality now resembles like the reality of someone on heroin? <laughs> uh, yeah. Is that okay? Is it okay? <laughs> well, we don't have a lot of say. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, I have one more thought about the blind owl. So you're doing a PhD in rhetoric. Yeah. But I was thinking about a, um, an equally kind of creepy novel is um, Camus' The Fall. It's not the narrative form of storytelling. It's it's a it's a very different, more concrete thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, not so much the rhetoric, but um, more maybe when I was working in cognitive science, and um, I worked on embodied cognition, which is like the idea that when you hear the word hammer literally the motor centers of your brain and like the muscles in your arm that would use the hammer sort of become active like they sit up straight um and they do something for your understanding of that word um but i think that like the first person perspective is this powerful key into that like uh hypnosis i guess is often the second person but like um 
I think the first person has the same sort of effect. Like, you fall into a story more quickly when it's like, I was doing this, you know, um, I saw this. this. Yeah, because yeah. yeah. y- your mind, like, Im- imagines it as the senses unfold. Um, whereas, like, third person, you can fall into it too, but uh, it's easier to go, like, Veronica? No one's named Veronica. Like, right. this, <laughs> this book is not working. <laughs> yeah, well, well, we really, um, we really appreciate you recommending it it was definitely a, a wild oh, experience so especially right yeah. after right after your book um and fun it's fun to read things in translation that yeah, i don't yeah. think i would have necessarily encountered otherwise like iranian fiction nope yeah yeah it's hard to know what's there and mm-hmm. then when i read this book it makes me want to figure out like what else there is <laughs> in yeah. the same tradition mm. so why don't we uh why don't we move from this, these unsettling fictions and uh, books that we might not have come across into recommendations. Uh, Drew, I'd love you to tell us what you recommend. I'm not really going to move away all that much because it's very unsettling. Okay, good. Um, but... I read uh, very late in October Shirley Jackson's *The Haunting of Hill House*. Oh yeah, which mm-hmm. a it's one of just the best like haunted house novels. It's there are some great like uh, scares that happen, <laughs> but also it it is this very insidious um, look at in the same way it's not as obvious as *The Blind Owl*, mm-hmm. but like a a mind that is not all together there. Mm. and the way that that builds over the course of the novel and you you realize you can't trust anything a because it's this creepy haunted house and b because the people who are telling you about this haunted house also maybe are not super trustworthy mm-hmm. um yeah and it's just i mean she's she's a master i look forward to seeing what you have to say about whatever short story is in that twisted ladies collection yeah i'm really yeah I, I that'll be my first shirley jackson the, the short story in oh there. cool yeah and uh yeah alexandra what about you um well i'm reading uh a book by my friend tony uh uh um called private citizens it's coming out in january mm-hmm. um and it's like it's one of these like four friends from college and the way their lives like diverge and things Love after those. it's me too. <laughs> um, and it's really hilarious. It's super oh, cool. funny and super smart and um, not really like, uh, I feel like sentiment can kill a novel like this, but like it's got exactly the right tone. So I'm really enjoying that. And um, I also just read, Eileen by Tessa and Mastrick, oh. t- talking about books that are in the same vein as everything else today. But like, like, um, it's got this incredible velocity, like, um, like there's only real one real plot twist, but it drives at it. Um, like throughout, like this amazing foreshadowing and you feel like you're both like barreling towards something and then going like eerily slow towards it too. It's really cool. Well, yeah. Uh, those sound amazing. I've, yeah, I'm really, I've, I feel like I've been remiss in not reading Eileen yet. I've just heard amazing things. About I know. It. I th- feel like I waited too long too. Um, it's sort of like the book I should have read right when <laughs> it came yeah. out. But <laughs> I'm gonna recommend this book that 
I, I, it is stuck in my mind to the point where I might have even talked about it before either purchasing it or even recommending it. But I, if it's a double recommendation, I apologize. Uh, but it's Jillian by um, Hallie Butler. Oh, wow. And it's this very strange... With a J or a G? With a J. Huh. And it's a really strange little book. It's like it's a pretty short and it fits in your back pocket. Um, it's out from this, I think it's a Chicago press called Curbside Splendor, which is also a nice phrase um Uh and it's about this this girl who's sort of kind of awful to be in her mind (laughs) (laughs) and um she she just hates her the person that she works with jillian so much (laughs) that it like consumes her (laughs) (laughs) and um jillian gets a dog and she's convinced that it will ruin jillian's life um, her <laughs> buying of this jo- dog. She's watching Jillian, hoping that it will. Or yeah, <laughs> she's really hoping for her downfall, even though she's like traveling down as well. And and it actually switches um, viewpoints into Jillian's viewpoint as oh. well. And so you sort of see that both of these women are being pulled down and down and down. So it's a real uplifting book. Oh, that and sounds <laughs> amazing. <laughs> Very good. And uh, yeah, I I really highly recommend it. It was it was sort of. I had no idea what was going to happen in the pages of this because the the cover is very um, strange and uh, it's all off-putting. So this is all uh, the book of the unsettling. Oh, yeah. Nice. Yeah, thank you so much for yeah, thank joining you us. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, this was so really much appreciate fun. It. And, oh, um, when you go out and buy your copy of uh, You Two Can Have a Body Like Mine, um, also buy... Um, if you want to make the drink that we were drinking tonight, <gasps> oh which yeah. I'm the calling, candy the cake. calling the candy cake, which is um, a reference to a food within your book. Mm. Um, it's uh, Godiva dark chocolate liqueur, uh, triple sec vodka, and fresh-squeezed uh, clementine juice um, shaken over ice and then poured into a glass. And uh, it's a nice drink. Kind of only want one. It's really, <laughs> it's really good. Yeah. It. I feel like I'm on a sugar high. Yeah, it's kind of that.